This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. How perplexing this transition to renewable energy is. Really, listeners, I'm out of my depth with this one. The demand for critical minerals is causing a gold rush mentality that really worries me. Today, we'll go to Chile with one of our guests. They are actually leading in renewable energy. They've got 13 gigawatts of wind capacity planned and hydro and geothermal resources. But like us, they also have copper and lithium. And it's the exploitation of that that may, I think, have undermined the resolution of people to continue in Chile to continue with their new constitution. Certainly, when the people of Chile rejected that constitution, the headlines in the mining papers were, for example, Canada, business for Canadian mines based in Chile can go on as usual. So to give us a taste of the urgency in the air, here is respected scholar Dr. Duncan Wood from the Wilson Center in Washington. It turns out as we make the transition to renewables and to an electricity-based future, you also need a lot of metals and minerals, not just for the basic machinery, but actually, of course, for the energy storage. And that's one of the most crucial things that we have to recognize is that for the renewable energy transition to actually take place, we still need to mine a lot of things out of the ground. In other words, it doesn't just happen uh, by, uh, as a miracle. And so if we look at, begin to look at the figures in terms of rising demand, um, you know, the, the International Energy Agency, for example, has published a number of reports um, most recently to talk about you know, how much uh, mineral resources are required um, for the renewable energy transition. And, you know, you see it particularly uh, as you see the transition from, you know, gas power generation through to uh, wind and solar. Um, but just to quote you some of the numbers, you know, the IEA predicts that the share of total demand from clean energies will rise to over 40% for copper and rare earth elements, 60 to 70% for nickel and cobalt, and almost 90% for lithium. That's by 2040. Um, and you know, a stunning growth in demand for critical minerals. Um, that's if we were sort of just to follow current conditions in terms of what like, we see in terms of rising demand. But if we were to reach our net zero emissions by 2050, then six times more mineral inputs would be needed in 2040 than today. So we're seeing this exponential growth in demand. And if we focus in on just one of these minerals that we're talking about, you know, the one that most people come back to, which is lithium, which is so crucial to energy storage in the current model, you know, we'll see that growing by over 40 times by 2040. Um, in that same period, solar and wind power generation will drive a 300 to 700% growth in demand. Um, we're looking at a demand for uh, mining of lithium uh, that is equivalent to far more than we've ever mined out, out of the earth in, in the past. And so we're looking at a huge demand that is growing very, very quickly. Um, if we think about some of the uh, uh, the goals that we've set here in the United States to have you know half of the electric vehicle, half of the vehicle fleet electric by 2030. That means that we've got less than eight years or seven and a half years to meet that. And honestly, I think that we're really up against it. I can't see how we're going to make that. If we think about you know 2035, um, then perhaps we're you know we're we're, we're going to get close to that. We're seeing a lot of investment being mobilized at this point in time. We've seen some really important initiatives, such as the announcement this week of the Mineral Security Partnership, which I'm sure that uh, my colleagues will talk about later on. The fact is, is that to meet that demand, 
everybody's going to have to work hard on it in a very coordinated fashion. We'll hear today from Federico Fuentes talking about Chile and Brazil, and from Liz Downs and Natalie Lowry, whose new report is called Green Extractivism and Sacrifice Zones. To make that idea sacrifice zones real for you, I'll tell you about a friend of mine who just came back from Western Australia. He went over there to see a, a beautiful forest, but he was shocked to see the number and size of lithium mines that have opened up. They have sweet names like Maid Marian and Earl Grey, and ironic ones like Green Bushes, not a bush in sight. And then in South Australia, vast copper mines are expanding as part of that state's net zero policy. So it's a real knotty problem. And so we'll start with Federico. We have Federico Fuentes here to give us a roundup of what's happening in climate action in the South American countries he knows so well. He has, edit he has been the editor and he writes for Green Left and his book, Latin America Turn Turbulent Transitions, should be on your bookshelf. I haven't read it, but I have been recommended to read this book and I really intend to. So welcome, Fred. It's a similar struggle there as it is here, isn't it? Against resources, the resource curse and the transition, even the transition to renewables is providing a problem like the lithium in we have in Australia and certainly they have in Chile. I don't know where else in South America. That's going to be a problem too, that, you know, if it's unregulated, the exploitation of that for the big turbines and the continued use of laptops and a lot of the modern machinery needs needs that. So I think we have a lot in common with them. Would you, would you agree the climate action community should know more about what's happening? I think so. I think in part because of the commonalities, <laughs> although I think there are also some differences uh, in terms of obviously the, the wealth of the generalised wealth in Australia is much greater than it is in, in South America. So governments are having to deal with, with that issue. But I think there's also a lot to learn in the sense of that in some ways we've already had some experiments or experiences with trying to transition, some successful and some unsuccessful, but we can learn lessons from that. Uh, certainly, for instance, one thing that is almost forgotten nowadays, but was really uh, groundbreaking at its time and deserves to have more attention focused on it, is Ecuador and the project of the Yasuni oil block, where the Ecuadorian government pledged to keep a massive amount of oil on the ground if only the world would help by contributing a small percentage of what the wealth Ecuador would have got from that oil. The end result was that it barely got any help at the international level. So the question should be asked, why was that the case? Why do we have so many summits and so many governments speaking out about climate change and when a concrete opportunity is put forward to actually both deal with the environment and help a much poorer country out, that help uh, was never forthcoming. So there are many lessons that we could be learning as well that will help us in our process of thinking through, well, how do we transition in Australia? Last week in the show, we covered the cloud forest in Ecuador and they're fighting off at the moment. Uh, they fought off two transnational companies and they've won against a Japanese and a Canadian transnational company. But now they've got Gina Reinhart uh, affiliate trying to get copper from this beautiful biodiverse land. So that was last week. We also heard from you a little bit about Colombia. Could you tell us now about Chile? I, I wonder this... Um, very recent news that they've rejected the new constitution, which had very broad uh, climate action in it. And one of the telling things I heard on Democracy Now, the Ariel Dorfman said, oh, well, the headline of the New York Times was, this is going to be bad for our lithium, you know, if, if they put all these restrictions on mining. I thought, oh, here we go, Salvador Allende again, you know. Mm. So what do you think? Absolutely. Yeah, look, absolutely. Well, I think there's two parts to it. There's no doubt that there were some very progressive environmental aspects to the proposed constitution uh, in Chile, uh, in particular dealing with mining, um, but not just mining, forestry as well is another big industry in Chile and has been very much at the sort of centre of disputes with the uh, indigenous Mapuche uh, people of, of Chile. Uh, of course, one thing is a constitution and then you have to legislate to make that constitution a reality. Uh, so in and of itself, the constitution perhaps would have at best provided a framework to then mm. move forward. And mm. then we would have seen the real details of how that, mm -hmm. how that happened. Unfortunately for now, the constitution uh, has not been approved. Um, 
Uh, but the but the process itself continues, and we'll have to see how they can move forward. There, of course, is nothing stopping the government from enacting progressive laws now, irrespective of the change of constitution on the issue of, of mining. So that, that battle is still open, even if that, that particular vote uh, was an unfortunate negative vote uh, in terms of what, the, what many environmentalists would have preferred the outcome to be. Yeah. What are the issues in Chile for climate activists? I think there's a range of issues. As I said, forestry is a, is a big one, which goes beyond just environmental activists to also involve indigenous activists. Uh, and then, there, of course, mining copper historically has been a big, big uh, mineral uh, exported from Chile. And increasingly, as you have mentioned, lithium up in the north, uh, where it will, you know, in the region that then borders with, with Bolivia and is, of course, is increasingly a, a more prized uh, mineral. So these are the issues that are certainly issues for environmentalists. Um, but it's also important to acknowledge that they're not these issues go beyond environmentalists. So they also affect local communities. Um, local communities, in some cases, dependent or at least uh, fed the idea that they're dependent on these industries for their livelihoods. So it creates very complex situations. And these are situations the government will have to deal with. And perhaps that's part of an explanation of why even in some of these areas, um, the constitution was rejected. That perhaps there wasn't enough of a discussion with the local communities as to what it would mean to actually move beyond um, a mining-based uh, economy. And in the in the sense of fearing what might come next, people preferred to stay with the status quo uh, rather than take a take a leap into the unknown. So this is a big big challenge they face. Boric hasn't had much of an opportunity to to make in, make many changes. I think it's also probably fair to add that. The environmental movement in Chile has not been a particularly strong one, uh, unlike as we talked last week in terms of Colombia, where it was very much a big part of the protest movements. Uh, environmental issues have probably been more focused on localised issues, so protests around specific mines, around specific forestry projects. But in terms of, let's say, um, a broad climate action style movement, yeah. uh, it's not that it doesn't exist, but it certainly hasn't had the weight that it you know, may have had in, in, in other countries. Yeah, well, next big one is Brazil. Uh, the last people I interviewed about that was around the time of COP26, and they were just devastated by the, you know, even the pledge to save forests coming out of COP26 being completely illusory, given the illegal logging and the green light given by their president. So what, what's your update on Brazil? Well, of course, a lot of it is going to, in one sense, depend on what happens in the presidential elections at the start of October, uh, where you have uh, far-right climate denialist Jair Bolsonaro standing for re-election uh, up against uh, Lula da Silva from the Workers' Party, who faces an important contradiction if he is to win the elections and the polls indicate he will, which is that his previous government and his policies that he's taken to these elections, whilst in word raise some important issues about the Amazon, um, reflect policies that continue to benefit agribusiness. Agri uh, so there may be a slowdown, but it's hard to envisage a re complete reversal should a Lula government come into power. That said, the contradiction he faces is that probably unlike the last time the PT were in power, the Workers' Party were in power, environmental consciousness and this issue of the Amazon has increasingly become a focus for including even Workers' Party members and the need to support small farmers as opposed to agribusinesses as a sustainable way of both doing farming and providing food but also saving the Amazon. So this will be an important contradiction. The government will have to navigate through that but I don't think it's going to be an easy, an easy struggle uh, but it'll be easier than if we have a Bolsonaro government in Brazil. Yeah, what about this idea from uh, Gustavo Petro that the North or the Global North should finance the um, preservation of the Amazon? You know, as you said, the example in Ecuador, but maybe, you know, we're 10 or 15 years later now, maybe we'll see the value in that. Well, I think, I, I, and I think it's a very important issue to be raising because the countries of the Global North have a historic climate debt that they have to repay to poorer countries. We, you know, when I say we, because in Australia, that includes us, even if we're in the South geographically, um, we can't have spent the last two centuries uh, using up most of the world's carbon budget and now turn around and ask some of the poorest people in the world to forego any attempt to lift themselves out of poverty in the name of climate. Um, 
we have to repay that debt. And part of that means that if we're going to ask them to do things in the Amazon, then we have to contribute to that. Um, when I say we, there I don't necessarily mean me or you, although we will probably you know, make our contribution, but the contribution has to be the big oil companies, the big gas companies, the big logging companies that have made billions and billions of dollars of profit uh, through this environmental destruction. They're the ones that should be helping these countries out. And I think without that, what we're going to find is that the, the governments that are hoping to bring about a climate transition are going to find it extremely difficult, if not impossible, to maintain themselves in power because it's all well and good to sell the idea of climate action. But if you can't feed your family at the end of the week, you're probably going to seek out a different type of government. And we know who are the, who are the parties that are going to benefit from that. It's people like far right current president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, yeah. and his climate denialist policies. So this is a big, big bind we're putting um, countries of the global south in. And if we don't help, we're actually what we're only doing is fueling the rise of more far right governments in that region. Well, you described last week how vigorous the movement was building up in Colombia. How much in where else in, in South America would you see that building up? You know, really vigorous, conscious, tactical, you know, build up. I, I would say that probably really at the forefront um, of sort of environmental struggles over the last few years has certainly been some of the more um, indigenous populations of Bolivia and Ecuador and to a certain extent Peru and where you've seen a combination of local campaigns against specific mining projects or specific forestry projects but linking up with actual concrete debates and discussion about policy-wide changes and even for instance the hosting of international summits to bring together movements from around the world to discuss how they can come up with proposals just as what you've said about how to save the Amazon while helping the people of the Amazon, you know, how to save the Yatsuni oil block from being exploited in, in Ecuador. So I think certainly those two, you know, those two countries have had important uh, environmentalist movements. And I think you've seen also elements of that in, in Argentina as well. Um, there's certainly been some, some important um, environmentalist protests, even if perhaps the, the issue of climate itself and, and climate action uh, hasn't been at the forefront of environmentalist concerns. At the forefront has been you know, the expansion of soya farming, um, protection of water. Uh, yeah. These are very, very important issues. And actually, the, the issue of water is one that you know probably crosses the entire continent um, in terms of its importance and the campaigning around it. Yeah. What hope do you have for these big international conferences like the COP system? We last year I attended a lot of the sessions for COP twenty six in Glasgow online, you know, and I could see there there were very worthy sessions with campesinos from all of those Andean countries and and from the Amazon and people, you know, being given a platform, but they weren't really given any hearing in the main sessions where groups like Santos were represented. You know, they were not really in there. I had many people later saying that they didn't feel they'd been heard. They were given a platform but microphone, but not really heard. So what 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 hope do you feel? Do you feel that there's another? We need other forums than that. That's not the right, the way to go. Or or do you think it should be done differently? I'm not sure if we need other forums, but I think at the end of the day, we we have to remember that these are largely summits of governments. So unless we change the governments that are participating in those summits, we're not going to have fundamental change at the summits. And that's really the challenge we face. So I think it's in, the summits are important. It's important to protest outside. Uh, there's also, I think, an importance of being inside and using that platform to raise issues. But ultimately, that has to be done with the thought in mind of being able to build a movement strong enough back at home to actually change the government. Uh, because the real change is going to happen at that summit when you have 120, 150 uh, progressive left-wing, even just environmentalists, regardless of politics, yeah. uh, climate climate-focused governments, are present in that summit. That's when you're going to see, firstly, concrete decisions being taken and then those decisions being implemented back at home. Uh, I think that's the fundamental issue more, more than the summits themselves and whether we need uh, new ones or better ones or, or, or to stick with the current ones. Great. Well, thank you very much, Fred. I think we've covered a little bit of it, but please keep in touch and I hope we can have an ongoing story here because I really feel there's a gap in our media about South America. Look forward to staying in touch.
Yeah, thank you very much. Federico Fuentes from Green Left uh, speaking to us from Sydney. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests slow down the path of fire, and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. This song is from Chilean singer Violetta Parra. It's just about my favourite song and brings back such happy memories of Chile in the time of Salvador Allende, who was president when I visited there. going to talk about Australian mining companies which are expanding in the name of climate action. Wow! Are you pinning your hopes on getting everyone into an electric vehicle powered by the solar panels on your roof? Is your vision for Australia as exporting gigatons of wind and solar energy to Singapore and Jakarta? Are you thinking that by leaving the coal, oil and gas projects behind we will be able to restore our forests and our wetlands and stop feeling so guilty about the environment. Well, our guests tonight want the energy transition as much as you do, but there's a gold rush now on for critical minerals like lithium, copper, nickel and cobalt, and it's being driven by the mining and energy industries and big asset managers like BlackRock who finance them. There are trillions to be made in this transition. Today, the urgency of taking action to stop the climate flipping past a point of no return is driving us to a new rush on land and in the deep sea. But how can we stop it doing long-term damage? Liz Downs from the Rainforest Action Centre and Natalie Lowry from AidWatch have worked on a report about how Australia's mining companies are expanding at home and abroad in the name of climate action. The name of their report is Green Extractivism and Sacrifice Zones. Welcome, Liz, 
Could you start by telling us about one place where the impacts of this new green mining are being felt overseas? I might just mention a couple of main kind of hotspots. Um, this is based on the fact that Australian mining companies in particular, uh, Australia is really spearheading um, a massive expansion of extraction of um, these so-called green minerals. Um, and they're doing it in Australia. There's a, there's a big push to onshore that, that, that extraction, and that's largely um, for geopolitical reasons and energy security reasons, as we might talk about later. Um, overseas, uh, our companies, we've, um, as you know, people would know, we've got some of the world's biggest companies like BHP and Rio Tinto. Um, neither of these companies have particularly good reputations in terms of impacts. Um, so BHP, for example, um, has been uh, copper, to take an example of one mineral that is going to be used in every single um, green energy technology there is because of its conductivity um, uses and that kind of thing. So the, the copper, copper mining expansion is going to have to increase dramatically. Um, BHP has previously um, been running the um, world's biggest copper mine in Chile. Uh, in the so-called Andean copper belt, where, you know, the whole of the Andes is basically just a, a, a copper and, you know, other metals as well. But so um, as, you know, uh, th these big mines um, are starting to run towards the end of their mining life. And um, as, you know, the, the industry demand for copper is going to increase, there's, um, you know, it's been said that they're going to need, I think, another 18 Escondida-sized mines within the next 30 years to supply a copper demand for electric vehicles and wind farms. So uh, they're moving up the Andes into Ecuador. That's where the exploration hotspot is at the moment. Um, it's, it's dramatically underexplored country. It's also the world's um, most biodiverse country. Um, and yeah, they're just like, well, you know, it's the Andes. There's got to be a lot of copper there. So <laughs> we're just going to, um, you know, over a third of uh, Ecuador is actually concession to mining at the moment for copper. Um, there's also up in the US, um, in uh, Arizona, BHP and Rio Tinto have a, uh, a huge mine planned, uh, which sounds wonderful for, um, you know, <laughs> uh, copper production to save the planet from climate change. However, it ha also happens to be a um, major um, Apache sacred site. Um, and if they destroy that site, it will be another Duke and Gorge. And, you know, again, people will no doubt have heard of Duke and Gorge and what Rio Tinto did to, it did to that sacred site here. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so basically the idea is they're expanding and creating potential um, zones for huge damage. Okay, well, let's stay with copper for the moment. Back here in Australia, I believe South Australia is shaping up as the copper state. And their net zero plan involves actually, you know, advancing this. And of course, there'll be jobs in that growth, you know, economic benefits all around. You can see it's irresistible. But tell us how they are managing their radioactive waste and tailing stems. I, I only know about this because I heard Gavin Mudd, who's a great expert on this, talking about the worry about the radioactive byproducts of all this money. Well, um, yes, yeah, so South Australia has climate action plan uh, 20, 2020 to 2025. Um, they want to really yeah, get net zero plan happening and look really good on the world stage and, and everything. So the thing about the net zero is um, that the you know, in order to produce, um, you know, they've got a, a mega battery um, that, that's being built. Uh, they've got for battery storage, there's wind farms, um, solar panels, electrification of transport in Adelaide, that kind of thing. Um, the amount of copper that is going to have to be produced within South Australia is planned to increase threefold to one megaton per annum by 2030. Uh, so one megaton, <laughs> so, and then you've got to look at what they're producing already. And so South Australia already has Australia's biggest copper mines, um, BHPs, uh, Olympic Dam, uh, Roxby Downs, that's the biggest. And then there's other mines nearby, which are, uh, and then there's exploration and there are projects going through as we speak. There, there's several problems with that. And one of those is that the, the copper in that particular part of South Australia is, um, combined with a lot of rocks that are rich in uranium 
So BHP is already mining the uranium at Olympic Dam and exporting that uranium. Basically, there's kind of like a food fight going on at the moment between the big mining companies. BHP's trying to buy up Oz Minerals. It also has mines in the region. And that's so they can work out a way to um, better centralise the processing of radioactive waste. But nobody really knows. I mean, it's, it's like, well, okay, we've got all these plans to process this huge amount of, you know, tripling the production. So that's going to be tripling the waste. Uh, it's going to be tripling the need to process the uranium, which has its own issues. I think the main issue, you know, it's, it's, all, it's, it's all happening very fast. Well, listen, Natalie, now we've got Natalie Lowry here as well speaking to us. Natalie, last week we heard from Ecuador and Colombia, and there's a pushback to this new extractive urgency. And I wondered, does AidWatch interact with Australian companies operating overseas to protect local people and environments on the front line? So one of the, the communities or the cases that we work with is actually in Papua New Guinea in East Sepik region. And the Frida River mine, if it goes ahead, would be one of the largest mines on the planet um, at the headwaters of one of the last pristine rivers on the planet. Um, the Sepik River is a great river with Indigenous people who've lived um, along it and with it for thousands of thousands of years. Um, and part of the work we've done is working with Project Sepik, which is a community-led organisation um, that have been working with communities opposed to this mine going ahead. So in terms of uh, talking to mining companies, often what we have done is brought frontline communities directly to the offices, to the, you know, the directors of the companies, so they can have a voice and let them know that in this case, they don't want the mine. They don't want the mine because they believe they already have their own Melanesian governance and economic structures that should be supported, not this um, mass expansion and of extraction in this case. So we do that sort of work, but really in terms of Australia, um, sadly, there is no um, real avenues for communities to hold Australian corporations accountable for their operations overseas. The only um, avenue we have is sort of a soft law, if you want to call it, which is the OECD complaint, um, which in this case, Project CPIC has an OECD complaint. Well, the communities of the CPIC have an OECD complaint in place against um, Panost, which is a Chinese-owned but Australian-registered company. So that is actually one of the issues. Speaking to the mining companies is fine, but, you know, there's actually not much in place in Australia to hold them accountable anyway, particularly for those communities on the front lines overseas and also, as we know, for First Nations communities here in Australia as well as local communities. Yeah, it seems like a, a crying shame. I looked at the maps in your report and there's Mongolia, there's all over South America, there's all over Africa. There's all kinds of mining going on. A lot of it is Australian companies and Australian expertise and probably ex Australian em employees going to all these places. And I feel, isn't there, is there anything in the pipeline to make international or global uh, regulations around that, especially getting prior consent from the local people? Yeah, look, there is some networks here that are trying very hard to do that, but this is years of work to change that and actually have any legislation implemented. We are a signatory of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which, of course, free prior informed consent, the right for Indigenous communities to say no, actually. Um, you know, we've signed that, but it's not implemented. I'm very aware that Senator Lydia Thorpe and, and some others are really trying to push that forward, particularly now as we're talking about treaty um, in this country. Um, it's really important that happens. In fact, really central to a lot of the work that both Liz and I do is around this right to free prior informed consent. And that right means that communities have the right to say no right from the very first process of a company trying to come onto their lands and territories and unfortunately we have native title here but that does not have FPIC enshrined in it in fact you know native title was probably bastardized a lot from the Howard years as we know and that has been a real um, tragedy for First Nations people in Australia and cultural heritage sites are being destroyed all the time I mean Duke and Gorge through uh, the Duke and Caves were um, very significant and got really big international attention. But, you know, basically cultural heritage sites are being destroyed all the time, right now as we speak. And that is 
you know, absolute desecration for First Nations people. And those fights are ongoing. And I think for some uh, First Nations communities, particularly in Western Australia, they're kind of almost pushed into corners where they have to sort of have negotiations with mining companies because there's just not much left for them to, to do. And, and I think that's kind of sad. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yaru country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. urgency of climate action a lot of the people listening to us would have held banners saying no new coal and gas no new coal and gas 100 percent renewables this has been the mantra and the energy behind the climate movement because it is so urgent so we can't say no new lithium no new copper i mean what what is and because it's such an international problem there's i mean these these minerals are dotted all over the world at the moment i interviewed people about the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty well we can't have a, a rare earth and critical minerals non-proliferation treaty because so what's the way forward do you think you know like on those international legal understandings well we need to have stringent regulations and that includes in australia where we've being told it's world's best practice but you know that's very questionable when we have such a legacy of mine sites in this country that have not been rehabilitated um, and we have a mass expansion ahead of us so of course myself and Liz advocate very strongly for the end to fossil fuels and you know coal oil and gas and in fact you know back in 2005 I locked onto a coal-fired power station so my my younger years were very much driven before the climate movement even existed doing that work but I don't think we can move ahead if we don't centre things in justice and we have to shift this like forever growth and also really understand the greenwashing that is happening right now around this mass expansion. So it is a shift in a logic and a shift in the way we see this world. And that shift has to move beyond exploitation and extractivism. So sure, we can't say no to everything. But we can definitely rethink how we're going to do this. This is a time we can, and it's not going to be easy. And it is going to be challenging. But right now with the greenwashing, we're seeing the same players, the same companies, the same industries that have destroyed our planet in the first place, going ahead and greenwashing and moving into these new kind of areas of extractivism. Mm -hmm. So what are we doing? A Band-Aid solution. If we don't, in terms of the climate movement, start looking at the supply chains to create these green, so-called green technologies, it will bite us in the bum in about a decade time because we're perpetuating the same colonial extractive ways that we have done. We're going from one industrialization into another form of industrialization, which is going to mean biodiversity loss in some of the most last pristine environments on this world. It's going to include more injustices to people in the global south, but also now to people in the global north, as we see expansion or reopening of mining in places like Spain, in Portugal, in Serbia, and of course, Western Australia and other parts of Australia are going to be massively opened. We need to really rethink, um, particularly in the Western context, the way we live and one concept is degrowth or really looking at our consumption our material and energy consumption and also listening to first nations um, and other indigenous peoples who have knowledge systems that go back thousands of years of how they've lived with their lands and waters now this does not mean we're going to go back to our caves or we have to give up everything which is the comment i always get that is absolutely ludicrous if we can dig massive holes and build big skyscrapers then we can work out these problems and find a way to reconnect with this planet and with nature and live with more equity and equality and much more harmony with the this incredible planet we live on oh. but it won't be easy 3CR. i'll just come back to liz now look i've attended in preparing for this i've attended quite a few webinars about critical minerals and I really hear the word, this is like IEA and think tanks in Britain. I really hear the word environment or First Nations 
and even water. You know, they didn't pop up. You know, they, they're an afterthought at the very end where they, they pay lip service to those. I think their problem is how to extract enough of these critical matter, minerals to take the renewable re revolution to scale. They're saying we're, 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 we're behind, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to keep up, but we've got all these targets that we can't possibly manage unless we just open up everywhere. Um, uh, and, and they're talking about their, uh, what I was thinking was that their haste is before climate disruption actually stops their supply chains. You've seen the floods in Pakistan. I saw on TV this morning a power station, soldiers, you know, digging great trenches around a power station to protect a power station from the next lot of floods. It's very critical. And, um, you know, so they, they are thinking it's a race against time to get enough of these critical minerals. And as an afterthought, oh, well, we're going to have to square it with the local people and <laughs> too bad about the forests. So is there another way to think about it, Liz? Um, Carlos Zaporizhia, who you introduced me to last week from Ecuador, he said we must invest in public transport. But then you've told me that Elon Musk is against that and he wants us to all be driving EVs. So does it come down to profit-driven capitalism versus public ownership? I know this is such a big chestnut, but could you um, tease it out a bit? Sure, yep. So... I mean, there are definitely two things going on. One is the fact that we are in a massive climate emergency. Uh, there is no doubt about it that we have to stop global warming. There's no doubt about it that we have to stop species extinction. Um, and all of those, you know, those things are very real. And, and of course, there are uh, well-meaning efforts at, at uh, government levels and at, um, you know, United Nations levels to, to try and uh, tackle this problem. And then, of course, as you said, there we've got the other side of it, which is capitalism going rampant and the fact that people are going to make an awful lot of money out of it and they know they're going to make a lot of money. So it's like these two sides, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're entangled with each other at the moment um, because you've got obviously companies going, well, we can we can produce these minerals, we can create these supply chains. But then you've got Elon Musk, for example, who is the world's richest man <laughs> um, at this time. And he, the reason he doesn't want um, investment in public transport is because it'll, um, you know, it put a dent in his profit margin. So for Tesla, um, and, and these are, the, this is kind of this tussle going on. And then the third thing that's the, the kind of collateral damage that is emerging from this tussle is what is known as sacrifice zones. And that's um, something that's you know, originally came up in academia talking about what extractivism is and what Nat was talking about before with the colonial nature where, you know, you can go and exploit somewhere else over there, you know, just somewhere that it's not going to impact on you, right? Um, it's, it's going to, and then bring up some raw materials and put it over into some uh, demand um, category where you can produce something that the world needs and make a profit. Um, however, uh, Naomi Klein actually produced a really good definition of sacrifice zone, which I don't have on me at the moment, but basically she said it's any place that is cast aside for um, capitalism to flourish. I have it here. That was going to be my expression. I'll just read Naomi Klein. Listeners, this yep. was from her book, This Changes Everything, about climate change. And she said, sacrifice zones are places that somehow don't count, at least to their extractors. They can be drained, poisoned and destroyed for the supposed greater good. And my question then was going to be, how do we create the new infrastructure of wind and solar power with storage batteries and all of that without new sacrifice zones? So maybe you could go on to that question. Yep. So, um, I mean, I work with Carlos Cerezia and, and he, uh, one of the things that he's very vocal about, and he may have already explained, um, I haven't listened to his interview yet, but I will today, um, is that uh, it's a concept of red lines, red lines for extractivism. And that is where you, okay, you look at, um, at the moment, you know, this, this thing, well, you know, there's going to happen, we don't, we, even if we manage to get some form of degrowth going on, even if we manage to get enough people on board with the fact that we had to totally reduce consumption, even if we, you know, there's still going to be for some time needing to be some extraction or mining. 
um, because we haven't got the technology yet together to get the recycling. Um, you know, it's not as much the technology, it's the lack of will and funding because it's not, it doesn't make as much money to recycle as it does to mine the stuff up in the first place, you know, that kind of thing. So all of this is happening. It's very complex. And then you've got this, this mining that continues. And so what Carlos is saying and what others are saying with the right to say no is we need to really look carefully at the places that we have to protect. We have to protect local communities. We have to protect biodiverse areas. We have to protect First Nations lands. You know, there needs to be some level of um, non-negotiability in a sense about, you know, where we mine. And, and it, it really, it turns out in the end, mining is just bloody destructive. It's a very destructive thing to do. We have to actually eventually um you know stop grand scale mining but in the meantime we just got to say we just can't have it in apache sacred lands in arizona we can't have it in ecuador which has more by more species per hectare than anywhere else on the planet and they're losing them every second as we speak you know we, we can't you know we just have to think about what we're doing on it and just um start elevating the voices of people who are saying look we just you know would you have a mine in your backyard you know <laughs> think hmm. about us is there a map of where definitely we mustn't, where, where these minerals and rare earths are, but where we definitely mustn't go? Is that, I would think, I would appreciate that sort of map. Yeah, I don't think Liz and I can kind of just draw up that map. I think that has to be, you know, because we're, we can't define all those um, no-go zones or sacrifice zones, you know, stopping those sacrifice zones from opening up. Um, but there's definitely... I think significant areas like um, the last sort of very biodiverse areas in the world, like Papua New Guinea and Ecuador and um, also our oceans. So, you know, I think there's definitely ones we could talk to, um, but there's yeah. probably places, you know, people would probably say Western Australia, it's just a desert, who cares? No one lives there. But that doesn't mean that there's significant ecosystems there that without them, you know, the... <laughs> maybe no one could live in WA because, you know, water is a big thing in places like Western Australia, yet the mining sector is sucking up a lot of water. So um, I think, you know, it, it's, I think we could identify some ones that we know about, but I think there's many probably that we don't know about, right, um, Liz? So, you know, Western Sahara, where they want to then be mining for potassium, for example. I mean, the communities there see that as really significant to them. So, but but to to someone in the Western world who lives on the, you know, in the east coast of Australia where it's all green, you would just think the desert's nothing. That's not the case. Our deep seas are considered a desert, but that's not the case. So um, I think, yeah, I, I agree. I think that would be an incredible project. Um, and perhaps what Liz and I can do is at least um, create a map identifying some of those zones that are, are kind of, you know, there is a lot of resistance around. Yes, well, you, yeah. you just mentioned the seas and, and I, we won't have time to really go into it, maybe another program, but just tell us what is happening, for example, in Tonga around those ocean, deep ocean mining. Um, well, it's not so much Tonga, it's um, it's in the South Pacific, so there's about 2 million square kilometres under exploration leasehold in the Pacific. Um, one of the significant areas is in a place called the Clarion-Clipperton Zone, between uh, Kiribati, Hawaii, and the coast of Mexico. So it's massive. It's about the size of Europe. That's already been carved up between certain companies and countries for the deep sea to be exploited. Now, we don't know much about the deep sea environments, but what we do know is time is slow there. And what they want to um, extract from there are these things called um, manganese nodules, so like a kind of potato or coal size. Um, and Oh, for over a decade, um, Pacific, it's been led by Pacific people, but also it's become quite international, um, basically to try and stop this industry from ever going ahead. Because if that particular area goes ahead, it will be the largest mining operation in world history. And we've recently done some modelling, which has taken a couple of years with an oceanographer, that shows that the discharge from that modelling, so the plumes that are created from like the digging up, it's basically like strip mining of the deep sea, that discharge within three months would reach the coast of Hawaii and also Kiribati. Um, and that would impact a whole range of people and their livelihoods. 
So this is a, a big industry that um, a lot of people don't know about, um, and it, in, it is in both national and international waters. So one thing which is very much about the conversation Liz and I are having is that the, the industry um, is aggressively promoting it as a solution to the climate crisis. And in the case of the metals company, which is led by an Australian, it's it's registered in Canada, but it's led by an Australian, you know, on their website, they claim um, that they will enable the battery powered shift to clean energy and electric vehicles with the lightest planetary touch. Now, when we cut open a mountain to mine for coal, we can at least see it, even though there's a lot of unknown impacts. How are we going to regulate and monitor 6,000, you know, metres into the deep sea, um, pretty much strip mining of our deep seabed? What's the climate impact of that? Oh, deep sea oceans, more and more as the science is coming out, are seen as one of the greatest carbon sinks. So it's pretty clear that it would have a climate impact, as well as the fact that our oceans are under such huge threat anyway right now from climate, but overfishing pollution. Yeah, that's one of the key things is that, well, once again, not only um, these pristine forests that we know are kind of the lungs of the earth that they're trying to open up in places like Ecuador and Papua New Guinea, they're now trying to open up a massive carbon sink, which is our deep seabeds. All right. So there's a big contradiction in that. And it's it all, it's all based on our ignorance of it and it's out of sightness of it. It's all in remote yes. places. How remote yeah. could the deep oceans be? So Liz, I'll come back to you just to finish. Well, I need to think to draw things together about the solutions. Degrowth is one. It's not a popular thing. People think it's a hair shirt, but there's there's other ways to think about it. But it sounds like the climate movement needs to expand what it says about the energy energy transition. You know, we can't just be stopped at those signs with no new coal and gas. We've got to move on. And one of your objectives, I think, uh, doing this report is to share communication materials and help us shift the narrative. Yes, yeah, so one of the things that is really a growing movement, and it's, it's at a grassroots level largely, but it's, you know, this idea of um, a justice transition. So we have our transition to a decarbonised economy. So that's, you know, one thing that needs to happen. Then out of that, there was this idea, these words of a just transition, which is quite well known in the climate movement worldwide. And that's the idea of making sure that people still have jobs, that, but they're just different jobs, you know, when they're coming out of the fossil fuel industry into the renewables industry, all that side of things. So, you know, that's a class-based transition. We've got a class analysis to it. And then, um, but a justice transition actually expands on that. That, where you're looking at we just need to not be creating new sacrifice zones in order that, and people that are already impacted by climate crisis are going to be doubly impacted um i mean it's just I, I, when i was writing the report uh, my bit of the report i had uh, this cartoon in my head that i wished i could draw which was like you know somebody's you know neck deep in water flooded out a house floating away and you know some mining magnate standing on a rock saying to you know if we're sitting in a helicopter saying to them, well don't worry we've got a, a huge lithium mine planned for your island which will just solve all your climate problems you know and that's so it's shifting a narrative out of that mentality and that's about a national network that Nat and I are part of called yes to life no to mining and that's one of the many ways in which activists and allies and people on the ground who are being impacted by mining and by as well as by climate change and everything else able to have a voice yeah. And I think, you know, these solidarity movements are really, because that just shifts people's thinking. And once people start caring about what happens on the other side mm -hmm. of the fence, they're going to make different choices. Yeah. It's really simple. Like you're going to, you start to think, well, if my, you know, just me buying an individual electric car is going to cause all of those problems, do I need an individual electric car? And it comes down to that consumer level of, you know, just breaking the barriers and breaking that colonialism that we are so used to having what we want when we want it, when we want it now, you know, to start thinking about other humans and other species that we don't necessarily, uh, we're not necessarily in contact with. Natalie, could I just ask you to finish on that? Other alternatives in the way we think? I mean, I think, for example, on not demanding so much, reducing this demand that the IEA and all have got this huge demand. Well, we can, we're the rich countries, we can reduce the demand, not just not electric vehicles. What else do you think we need to change our mindset and government policies and aid where we put our money in terms of a different way of thinking about how much we add to that demand? Sure. I mean, I think on what Liz is saying, you know, no one gets left behind in this transition. 
that's what needs to happen. But currently, we are on a pathway where it's going to be the same people left behind. And we go, oh, floods in Pakistan, we, we see we need to stop this. Of course we do. But, you know, we're not seeing really good age go to Pakistan right now. We're still seeing people of colour <laughs> in these situations like Somalia where hunger is huge. Like, so there is a, I think going back to what Liz said, it's actually shifting ourselves out of this colonial uh, logic that we're in and and actually looking at what decolonization really is about. And that means actually looking at our privilege. It doesn't mean going back into caves as everyone sort of says, not everyone in the climate movement, but you know, as the sort of industry will say, we need economic growth. What it means is actually becoming a lot more in tune again with the environment, with um, all non-human beings, you know. Uh, we need to get connected back into that. We need to sort of understand that our happiness and well-being isn't tied to economic growth. I think actually the research is out there proving very, very easily in the global north that we have such a, we have a mental health crisis. So economic growth is not really helping with that, right? And we need to understand what democracy is. And I think part of that is making sure we have a really strong civil society, a participatory democracy, which I think in, even in Australia, we're under an illusion we have. And people are sort of drawn to this, oh, if we just change the government, it will change. No. We actually, we are the change. <laughs> we need to change. So we need to shift the way we look at the world, our worldview. We have to understand there are many worldviews. And that's not so easy in a country that has particularly been built on, you know, the genocide of First Nations people. We, we have to go back and recognise that. We have a lot of work to do to understand what justice and equity is about. And, you know, part of that will be having to decrease our consumption. But, you know, how many cars does one person need? How many TVs? How many electronic equipments do people need? Um, do they need the new phone? Do our phones need to be replaced every two years? Can they be designed from cradle to cradle that we hold on to our phones for, you know, almost a lifetime and we can get little parts changed, module parts? That's just one idea. There are plenty of visions out there of how we can live. And I know in the climate movement, and I'm still perplexed as to why people are concerned about degrowth. I think in their minds, they think it means we're going back to caves. That is completely wrong. They should get out there and they should read what degrowth is about. It's a very intelligent way forward. And it includes many, many different sort of areas from justice to democracy, to feminism, to, you know, anti-utilitarianism where we, you know, it's very individualistic. We need to shift that to think about coexistence, to actually have very sophisticated social relations. Not just think about economy and all this sort of profits, but actually what are our social relations and what is it to live on this planet? And that's a shift. And I, I really believe there are a younger generation coming up really starting to question that because they're the ones who are going to inherit what's going on. Thank you very much. I've been talking to Liz Downs and Natalie Lowry. The name of their report is Green Extractivism and Sacrifice Zones. You can watch their talk and many others at earthlaws.org.au. It's during the September Earth Month. So that's Earth Laws, one word, Earth Laws. Liz and Natalie's webinar will be on Friday, the 23rd of September at noon. It's free, so please register now. <laughs> I am not in love, but I'm open to persuasion. When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. Thank you for listening to the Climate Action Show. Our guests were Federico Fuentes, who's a journalist with Green Left and an author, Liz Downs from Rainforest Action, and Natalie Lowry from Aid Watch. We need to think about reducing our demand for the lavish supplies of renewable energy and electronics that we're used to, so that the transition can be managed for the common good of all. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and 
Good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5 p.m. to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Hi there, music lovers. It's Jane and Joe here from Music Music Matters. Matters. We're here to remind and encourage you to either renew or subscribe to this extraordinary volunteer-based community radio station that is 3CR, 9419 8377. 